This is Geek Gab with your host, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, July 8th, 2017. And we have, as previously announced, a review of Spider-Man Homecoming, the new Marvel movie. And it really is a Marvel movie this time because the last four Spider-Man movies, the last five Spider-Man movies, excuse me, have all been Sony productions. So this is the first real Marvel Spider-Man since, uh, I don't know when, since Marvel established its own studios. I am, of course, not including his guest appearance in Civil War. And we also have a review of the first episode of Netflix's brand new Castlevania anime series. One of my co-hosts has sacrificed themselves to watch fully an hour, at least I think it's an hour, of that brand new show. And he'll be talking about that in just a few moments. Speaking of co-hosts, John, how was your week? Hey guys, it's been a good week. Got a couple of gaming newses. Um, did a nice episode of the game night last week, and I followed up with uh, my weekly game. I took some advice from our co-hosts, and uh, and uh, I wanted to report on that, if you don't mind. Go for it. I decided that that the dungeon would be infused with a swamp fever, and it worked better than I anticipated, mm-hmm. as every single party member failed the uh, their saves. <laughs> and and as they trekked into the dungeon, the, the wear and tear and exhaustion created by the disease added another layer of dread and tension to the game that uh, I didn't think was possible. And, uh, and consequently, I did kill a bard, so... Good times. So they don't have a cleric in the party? In the edition I'm playing, the cleric was level 2 and didn't have uh, a cure disease spell or anything like that. And they didn't want to stop and go back someplace to try and find somebody who could cure disease. Well, the difference is, is that I'm an ass. And and the disease it was a rapidly uh, progressing disease, so they they mitigated it as best as they could. Once they realized that they were in the shit, they mitigated it as best as they could and tried to escape the dungeon. Unfortunately, one of the characters uh, wasn't able to stabilize. Like he just he failed. He literally failed every check, and uh, and he expired before they could get him to safety. Oh, there you go. It happens. It happens. There's another thing. Um, in uh, in video news, uh, I saw Mrs. Dornell pick up the latest Diablo expansion. Uh, they added another, you know, a whole a whole other scenario, and they a new character. They brought the Necromancer back for Diablo two fans. Um, it looks like a lot of fun. It's it's fifteen dollars, so it's a bit pricey for just a single scenario and a character, but. Uh, you can, I mean, it's Diablo. You can get hours and hours of value out of that. You can't even buy it for 15 bucks on the Xbox One, I don't think. They're selling it as a... <laughs> the only game of Diablo 3 that's been available on the Xbox One is the one that comes bundled with the last expansion already. 
So that's all you can buy. You can't buy it separately. And then they released a brand new edition that has that application plus this new DLC for like 50 bucks. And I'm thinking, why the hell would I spend another 50 bucks just to get the Necromancer and this brand new, you know, scenario? That For a game... Love Diablo. For a game I didn't like all that much in the first place. Um, yeah, Diablo three is a is a pretty good game, but I think it definitely Diablo two hit sort of a sweet spot and and you know captured many hours of many gamers' lives. And uh, Diablo three didn't hit that spot anymore. I think Diablo's time has come and gone. I've been waiting for them. They were supposed to release for Diablo 3 an homage to the original Diablo. Like have a bunch of original Diablo-themed levels recreated in Diablo 3 so you could go play through them with your Diablo 3 character. I don't know if that's ever been released. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't. Okay. Because that's what I've been waiting for. It's like, I'm not really interested in Diablo 3 anymore because I played through it all the way. I haven't played through the expansion, but I played through the original Diablo 3 all the way. And I've been waiting for the Diablo 1 homage because I want to see what that's like. I want to play through that and just to see uh, see what they did with it. So. Yeah, so for those of you interested, I mean, the Necromancer is... Once, once monsters start dying, he gets more powerful. And so he just... In those big waves of monsters, it's fun to watch. Um, how was your week, Brian? Good, good. Um, the book that I just launched last week, uh, Him of the Pearl, is doing really well. Reviews are rolling in. Uh, people really like it. Uh, it's selling briskly, and it's already in the black. And been working on an editing project, so keep keeping busy. As you mentioned, I even had time to sit down and watch some cartoons. So, watch the Castlevania animated series. We can uh, talk about that in a little bit if you want. Uh, go ahead. Um, I'm really interested in hearing about it. Yeah. Okay. So, I checked this out with a buddy last night. It's a Netflix original. And I was interested to find out it was written by Warren Ellis, best known as comic book author. I don't know if you guys are, are familiar with him. Yes. Yeah, I believe he writes like DC Vertigo mostly, and he worked on Stormwatch. He typically does very, you know, dark and disturbing things. Yeah, I, I definitely got the sense that that's what they were trying for in this. Um, unfortunately, the main thing that came through to me is, in in, in terms of of history. And and culture, uh, it, it's just completely absurd and like not in a, a fantastical fun way. It is as if someone took like Bill Nye's or Neil deGrasse Tyson's view of of the church from the Middle Ages, you know, like witch burning, superstitious, actively hating science, ramped it up to eleven, and wrote a script based on that. And it it was to the point of being comical, just how much Christian bashing was in it. Which makes no sense because it, it's about people hunting a vampire, right? Yeah, normally, <sighs> normally the the Catholic Church is at the forefront of hunting down vampires. 
Well, that's the thing. That That's the mistake they made, because it is set in Wallachia, which is historically accurate. Um, Vlad Savish was the Prince of Wallachia. However, what the show gets wrong is portraying Catholic bishops and archbishops as leading witch burnings when Wallachia is Eastern Orthodox. Oh. It was, yeah, it was not controlled by the Catholic Church. But that's okay, because smug, historically illiterate postmoderns just like to forget that the Orthodox exist. And that's what they did in this case. So that was pretty glaring when you had dudes in Roman collars and, you know, uh, crimson skull caps, like burning witches. There's even a part where um, one guy admits to studying chemistry and the bishop looks at him, you know, just gives him the dirt shoulder. And guy's like, oh, purely, you know, as a, as a hobby, of course, you know, don't study too closely. Like, yeah, hmm. Interesting. And I wonder where all those universities came from to teach medicine. Like the main female character is uh, is eager to study. It's just, um, yeah, without getting into too many spoilers, it sets up, like right from the first scene, uh, one of the main conflicts is the completely false conflict between science and religion and the idea that Christians are superstitious, in fact, hate science, mistake, honest, like actual medical science for witchcraft, I know that the Inquisition just willy-nilly burned witches at the stake when actually, a uh, little side note, during the Spanish Inquisition, the Spanish people asked the Inquisitors to come in and investigate instances of witchcraft, rumors of witchcraft in northern Spain. The Inquisition came in and said, we didn't find anything. Um, you know, they, they cleared everybody. They questioned. So the Inquisition was actually historically... A, a very moderating and a sanity maintaining force against witch panics. So, yeah, the in in terms of uh, you know, Christophobia, Christian bashing, first episode of Castlevania, like is it's almost pose law level. It's almost parody. And and that's funny considering the source material. And I use that term loosely, but. They, they, uh, you know, the character Simon Belmont, in addition to his whip, which is awesome, no matter how little sense it makes, uh, he he has a bunch of side weapons that he can pick up in the castle to use against his foes, and they include like the classic anti-vampire weapons of crosses and holy water. Yeah, in the very first scene, the very first scene of the show, I kid you not, they just dispel that any of that stuff works. Like someone pulls a yeah, cross on Dracula and he calls it a superstition and if people are pulling crosses on him, he doesn't even bat an eyelid and you know, garlic it doesn't work and Yeah. They they didn't try holy water, but I I'd, I'd be surprised if at some point they didn't try that and just show it doesn't work. Because you know, what they're trying to do is set up science versus superstition and they equate superstition with the Christian faith because uh, there's certainly a lot of mention of, of Muslims even though they mention religion in general and considering like if you know who who Vibing Paler was you know that's just ridiculous you know, that's a huge glaring omission um, there's, there's even a throwaway line where um, the character meets Dracula refers to 
the impaling is like, oh, I don't do that anymore. I gave that up. <laughs> My analysis of that would be this. If your notion of a proper theme for a Dracula story is science versus super, superstition, and it isn't science that comes off the worst by denying there's such a thing as a supernatural vampiric predator, then you're doing it wrong. I wouldn't suggest science versus superstition as a theme for any Dracula-related work anyway, because Dracula, as a monster, is the very essence of superstition. And the only thing you're going to be doing is you know, taking a hammer to science and saying, no, this supernatural evil that has returned from beyond the grave really exists. I wouldn't suggest that because that kind of misses the point of Dracula too. Vampires is the lore should be about, you know, temptation and supernatural evil and all of these things. I mean, I may have disliked a lot about Penny Dreadful uh, in our show that we did about them earlier, uh, what about, uh, over a year ago, I think. But at the very least, um, they got that part right in that the seductiveness and the evil of supernatural horrors were well on display. Right. And that's because you're, you're thinking consistently and logically, albeit about fanciful things, but Netflix's Castlevania is incoherent. It's, it's internally inconsistent because Dracula is hinted to be not a supernatural monster, but an immortal alchemist, like more along the lines of a Nicholas Flamel or something, who has over the, the centuries developed advanced science that allows him to like teleport around and allows him, you know, to extend his life. And so he's set up as more of a mad scientist. And so the the, the traditional remedies for vampire are just dismissed out of hand. They're shown not to work because the supernatural order is dismissed, except at one point when he mentions summoning creatures from hell and summons a bunch of gargoyles. So um, it acknowledges the preternatural when it wants to, when it wants to make Dracula look cool, and denies it when it wants to make Christians look barbaric and stupid. Sounds like a fun, 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 fun show. <laughs> well, there's there's plenty of there, don't worry. There's plenty of instances of blood and gore. And uh, sheep rape jokes. So there's that. Um, any anything else you want to say about the story before we flip topics real quick? There's a lot I want to say, but I'll restrict myself to to just one more thing, which is it makes the classic mistake of trying to explain the villain and try to try to make him sympathetic. Um, if anyone out there has played Symphony of the Night or Castlevania 3, which you really should, then you might get a hint of where, where they're coming from because um, the series is, from what I can tell, a retelling of Castlevania 3, at least that's where it starts. So they try to make Dracula sympathetic. They try to give him a good reason for you know wanting to make war on the people of Wallachia and try to turn him into a sympathetic villain. So he's, he's really not even a villain at the beginning. And it just robs him of really everything. Any any menace? I mean, he's he's clearly a threat. But really, at first, you're rooting for him because the people wrong him terribly 
And so it's really more about Dracula's search for revenge against humanity. So, yeah, it takes a classic story, screws it up, give it a pass. Like, do, do not reward them for making this. Yeah, they, they definitely checked all the boxes except sparkles on the How to Ruin a Vampire Story checklist. <laughs> um, all right, well, I... Uh, while Brian was doing the first part of his review, I went and checked something out. It looks like, uh, and Bradford Walker mentioned this in the uh, chat as well, it looks like the Diablo 1 homage was only for a special event during the month of January, and so it's not accessible anymore. was accessible during January, isn't accessible anymore, but supposedly they'll be bringing it back annually. So every January you'll have a chance to play through that homage to the original Diablo 1 in Diablo 3, um, but if you wait after January, no go. Uh, it's available through the adventure mode. So looks like I'll have to wait another six months before I have a chance to take a look at that. Okay. Um, so I went and saw a new movie yesterday. How about you guys? No. 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 <laughs> Well, I went and saw the brand new Marvel movie, Spider-Man Homecoming. Now, those of you who might be confused by the title, it refers to the fact that Peter Parker went with Tony Stark to Berlin to fight in the Civil War that was going on between two factions, two different factions of the Avengers. So when Captain America and his group faced off against Tony Stark and his group, Spider-Man was there, and then he returned to his neighborhood in New York City. He was coming home, therefore it's called Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, and I will say this. In my opinion, this movie is the best of all six Spider-Man movies that have been produced so far. And the Spider-Man movies have been generally pretty good. The first two um, were great. The third one, not so much, where it had Sandman and Venom in it, uh, and Gwen Stacy and the infamous emo haircut and so on and so forth, not a, not a good movie. The reboot with Andrew Garfield, the first episode of that, was good. The second one with Jamie Lee Fox was not good at all. Um, and then they have re-rebooted it because Marvel Studios head, Kevin Feig, went to Sony and basically begged them to allow him to make a good Spider-Man movie. Um, and for the most part succeeded spider-man has been licensed from sony for five movies the character has been licensed from sony for five movies the first one of which was civil war the second one of which is spider-man homecoming he will also appear in avengers 3 and avengers 4 and in a sequel to avengers homecoming another solo movie as the last one so after that, Sony gets the character back, and Sony still has all the rights to, like, Carnage and Venom and all of the other ancillary Spider-Man characters, uh, all of his rogues gallery, Black Cat, and so on and so forth. So you can expect 
And indeed, there are just recently announced plans to do a Venom and Carnage movie that has nothing to do with Spider-Man. He's not in it at all. And um, the same producer who screwed up Ghostbusters, um, whose name I can't remember right now, she tried to announce in a press conference that the Venom and Carnage movie that Sony was launching would be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And Kevin Feige just kind of sat there and looked really, really uncomfortable. And then later said to uh, reporters, no, it's, it's not part of the Marvel Universe. That's completely off on its own. It's not canon. So, interestingly enough, um, the Marvel television shows, both Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the upcoming Inhumans, appear not to be part of the cinematic universe either. <laughs> At least all of their attachments to it go one way. And I, the reason why I bring that up is because Spider-Man Homecoming points up exactly how incompetently done Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was. Because it includes a lot of elements... It is, in many ways, what Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. should have been, but wasn't. And the very opening scene, the very first scene of the movie, involves Michael Keaton, who some of you who are old and gray and doddering towards the grave might remember as the lead actor in the 1989 uh, Batman movie. He was also in Beetlejuice and uh, did a recent movie called Birdman, which was sort of about his experiences as Batman, and so on and so forth. Michael Keaton, one of my favorite actors, did a ton of really great movies. He's a great actor, and he turned in an incredible performance in this movie. So the very first scene revolves around him. And we are taken back in time to the day of the original, or the day after the original Avengers movie. There was that Chitauri invasion of New York. They blew up a bunch of stuff. The big, huge, you know, flying whale thing crashed. And Toombs, who, that's his name, Toombs, is hired by the city of New York to come in and clean up this mess, to collect all of these alien artifacts, to chop up this whale beast, and to generally help clean up and rebuild New York City. So he went out and bought new trucks, hired new crews, and is ready to do this. But after one day of cleaning up the city, a brand new government agency called Damage Control comes in and shuts him down totally and doesn't even pay off his contract. So he loses money on the deal. He's financially devastated. But a couple of his disposal trucks, and I'm not spoiling anything, because this is the very first scene in the movie, uh, and it's in fact available online, the first four minutes of the movie. At that point, one of his disposal trucks still has alien artifacts in it, and his crew uses alien artifacts to create the vulture suit that you may have seen in the trailers, if you watched the trailers or saw you know, the poster and so on and so forth. That vulture suit is Earth technology powered by alien power cells. And he gets into this as a business, begins racing uh, around the world to gather up. And you don't see this part on screen. This is just what happens later. He races around the world to pick up these alien artifacts from all of the different incursions. For example, in four... Um, 
the second Thor movie and uses them, makes weapons or other tools out of them and sells them on the black market to criminals. So if you want to take it back to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. really quickly, that is what Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. should have been concerned with, but wasn't. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was generally a bad show because it skipped over all of these cool ideas and Spider-Man Homecoming nails them. So that's the first couple of minutes of the movie. After that, we see Peter Parker returning from uh, Berlin and trying to get back into his life. And here's the thing. And I want to tie this back into the Kevin Feige, uh, Amy Wasser name discussion. She announced that the Spider-Man spinoff of Carnage and Venom was going to be part of the Marvel Universe, when it isn't. It has the Marvel logo at the beginning, but it isn't part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And neither is, for example, the Fantastic Four movies or any of the X-Men movies or whatever. All published co comics were published by Marvel, but other studios own the rights to them. They're not part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What that opening scene of Spider-Man Homecoming does, is it not only sets up the character of the Vulture, who he is, what he's about, he's all about protecting his family, he's all about making sure that their future is taken care of, and he's willing to cross legal lines to do so, but it also sets up the fact that this Spider-Man movie deliberately and specifically takes place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because they set it right around the biggest crossover in that phase one. So you know right from the beginning, okay, you know, this Spider-Man could go down the street and run into the Hulk, or he could go across town and meet Daredevil, or you could have Captain America guest starring, whatever. And all of that is set up in the very first scene without any exposition whatsoever, just talking about the alien invasion of New York and showing the devastation of it from the street level, from blue collar worker level, you understand that this whole movie is set in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and it's done instantly in just a, you know less than a minute. You immediately know that any of the audience watching the movie, if they're familiar with any of the other Marvel movies, if they've seen them, would immediately understand, okay, this is part of a bigger story and you don't have to spend a lot of time on it. You don't have to get complicated about it. It's just bam, right there. I thought it was very, very well done on all kinds of levels. And so right away, the movie began convincing me that they had done a good job. They bothered to think things through, not only about who Spider-Man was and what he's doing, but about his place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, about how he relates to the larger universe around him. Um, Spider-Man, Peter Parker is 15 years old in this movie. And you kind of think, well, isn't that a bit young for Peter Parker? And my rejoinder to that is this. It's been over 10 years since we started with the very first Iron Man. And Robert Downey Jr. has been playing him all this time in, in a number of different movies, not just the three Iron Man movies. And if Spider-Man on whatever schedule they're going to be making these five movies, if Spider-Man is around for five years, then he'll be 20 at the end of that. He'll look 20. And you can expect time to keep progressing. And so the reason why people have been complaining that Aunt May was uh, isn't gray-haired, she isn't old, she isn't wrinkled. Well, the reason why is because Kevin Feige is planning for the future if they're going to have a future past uh, this one movie, which they do, they have others 
you know, scheduled out, and if they're going to have uh, a future, even maybe past the five movie deal, then she'll get older and older and older. You can't keep in a movie universe, you can't keep Aunt May 60 forever. In 10 years, she'll be 70. In 20 years, she'll be 90, you know, uh, or 80, excuse me. Um, so they've cast Peter Parker and Aunt May Young to avoid the same problems that they're having now with Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans and uh, so forth, in that the actors are becoming older and older and older. So that's why they've done these things. They have thought these things through down to not just what's going on in this movie, but on in uh, how things will play out in the future. So the question is, is Spider-Man Homecoming a good movie? And I would say unambiguously, yes. It is the best of the six Spider-Man movies that have been made since 2000. And they start off showing the quality right at the beginning with great characters that are interesting. Now, it stumbles a bit when he gets into high school because Peter Parker has this friend who, again, if you've seen the trailers, you know him. He's that big fat kid who is spends most of the movie being really obnoxious and annoying, and I just wanted to punch him. I just wanted Peter Parker to punch him and say, that's it, get the hell out of my life. He never does, but the character is... I understand he's supposed to be annoying, but he's he does that a little bit too well. So the rest of the movie has, of course, impeccable special effects, which you begin to expect from AAA movies. You're taking that for granted now, which is fine. AAA movies, you know, high-budget movies should have impeccable special effects at this point because we have developed the technology to do so. Uh, it is a sign of incompetence on either the behalf of the studio or the director if a movie has bad special effects when they have the budget to do them. Now, I, I'm not indie movies, smaller budget B movies. They don't have the money to do that. But for, for AAA releases, they have, they have to do that right now. It's just expected. That's the minimum basic requirement to do a good movie. The characters are interesting. The plot makes sense. I enjoyed watching it. Um, Spider-Man is fun, and he is 15. He's just started out in his career. I think he only became Spider-Man about a year before this movie. And so he is really, really bad at his job. He's really, really bad at just about every aspect of his job. And in various different scenes throughout the movie, they show that, where he's trying hard, but he isn't yet the mature capable Spider-Man that the other movies kind of skipped over that. They went from a training montage to Spider-Man being pretty good at his job. You didn't see this arc of inexperienced character building up over uh, across several movies. But again, Kevin Feige is patient. He's laying the groundwork for a longer appearance. He's building up this cinematic universe. And so Spider-Man in this movie is 15 and he is uh, he makes so many rookie mistakes, and he falls at different points. He loses his school backpack. He tries to web it to keep it out of the way, but the thing he webs it to disappears. So he has to go tell Aunt May, you know what? I lost the uh, backpack. I need a new one. She says, that's the fifth one. Um, so it is stressed through the movie how inexperienced he is, and all of what he's doing makes sense. Um, 
Vulture is incredible. I mean, Michael Keaton just turns in, again, top-notch performance because he's Michael Keaton. And Vulture, I think, might actually be the best developed uh, Marvel villain in all of the cinematic universe. Um, he is not... He's not a flat character. He has very strong motivations. You know what his motivations are. And the neat thing about it is he's very much a blue-collar, street-level criminal who has one genius on his team who happens to be one of those underperforming geniuses who apparently has wasted their life, who all of a sudden gets a hold of some alien tech. And this happens to be the one quirky thing that he, the one way that he can actually do something really, really great in which his intelligence, which would otherwise be wasted it, by his circumstances, he actually can do stuff with it. And he does some really cool and interesting things with the technology. And other than the fact that they've gotten a hold of alien technology and used it, parlayed that into getting more, he's a street-level blue-collar guy. He's not, um, you know, he's not a Norse god. He's not Thanos who bends entire races to his will. He is very much a small-scale villain, and it's great. It's good to see that side of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the street level side where we're not dealing with necessarily world shaking, you know, events. The city is dropping out of the sky and when it hits the ground, it'll throw up a dust cloud that'll wipe out all life on Earth. We're not dealing with events like that. We're dealing with this battle between Spider-Man and Vulture. And he makes a great minor crime lord. Um, and I was just, I really enjoyed the performance. I really enjoyed that side of the Marvel Universe and the fact that, and I guess you can kind of equate that to the Defenders, the four, uh, the four characters who are on the Netflix Marvel shows, Daredevil, Luke Cage, uh, Jennifer Jones, and Iron Fist. They're also street level right now, but it's interesting to see Spider-Man, who is quite possibly the single most marquee character of marvel comics from that point of view because in this movie he's not the super spider-man everybody has come to know he is a small kid with virtually no reputation and he is also a street level superhero right now he's struggling to grow into his powers he's struggling with the a uh, fabulous suit that Tony Stark made for him, which has far more capabilities than we saw just in Civil War. And the Vulture being the street-level uh, villain with fabulous technology perfectly matches Spider-Man, who's a street-level kid who is just a sophomore in high school, but who has access to uh, his innate superpowers and also the uh, technology that Stark has gifted him with. The two characters are matched. And uh, their bout feel is uh, great. What what Peter does is really interesting as far as how he goes about trying to fight uh, Vulture and all the mistakes he makes out of inexperience and how it all plays out in the end was a satisfying conclusion. So I really enjoyed the movie. I think it's a great comic book movie. It's not an origin story. So you don't have to watch him developing the formula for his web shooters. You don't have to watch him learning how to use his abilities. We've seen that twice before 
with the other two reboots, and they just skip over all of that. He's been a hero for a very short period of time. He's kind of bad at it, but he's trying really hard, and he's a good kid, and you like him. And that allows them to start with the villain and develop it through the story instead of spending all this time on, oh, look at the powers I've got, and explaining them to the audience and stuff, because the audience pretty much knows what Spider-Man's powers are at this point. So they reference events that made him, be, uh, leading up to him becoming a superhero, but you don't, they don't spend half the movie with just him getting his powers and learning how to use them. Um, those are my thoughts right now. Do you guys have any questions, any areas that I didn't cover or didn't mention that you think should be? Well, I am really relieved that it's not an origin story again. Seconded. Uh, shocked that you liked it better than Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man, or second one. Yes. It's better than those two. It has its weaknesses. Um, and I will leave commentary on some of its weaknesses to other people, because I'm sure other people are going to be upset by it, and they can cover that well. Um, uh, some of the weaknesses, so... Uh, but it is better than it's better thought out it's better plotted um and i like the villain better i mean don't get me wrong the dr octopus from the second spider-man movie from the second sam raimi spider-man movie is a great villain but i think vulture is better oh that's good to hear and and on a related note can i just say that we need more michael keaton in our lives <laughs> Like Birdman a few years ago was just a like a fresh reminder. Oh yeah, he's a great actor. What happened to him? He doesn't do a whole lot of movies anymore, and the movies he does do aren't necessarily, you know, big name movies. I don't know what happened. If there was a stumble in his career somewhere, if he just stopped being given great scripts, or he stopped getting opportunities to do great scripts. Um, oh yeah. Also, uh, Captain America shows up in some very, very funny, but entirely apt cameos. Uh, mm. They're hilarious. I, I don't want to spoil them because they will catch you off guard when they first happen. And you will probably have the same reaction I did, which is, what the heck is that? Oh, it is. Why are they? And then it'll make sense. It'll make absolute perfect sense why those things are happening. But... Um, I want that to be a surprise because it's kind of a delightful surprise when he pops up. Um, cool. Also, Tony Stark's appearance in the movie is not stunt casting. It isn't just having Tony Stark in the movie just so you can say, like, for example, Tony Stark showed up in the Hulk movie and he was basically there. He was there for a couple of lines and he left. He was just there to tie that movie into the Marvel Universe to say, oh, look, there's bigger things going on, which is fun. I'm not saying that's bad. It's far better than Black Widow's use in Iron Man 2, uh, which we also discussed on the show, and I did my replot of it, my revision of it. But Tony Stark is not showing up just to do a cameo to kind of wave and wink and say, hey, look, I'm part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and so is Spider-Man. He's actually an integral part of the story. He's an integral part of things, and he had to be there. The way they set up this story coming on directly after the events of Civil War, he had to be there. It's not 
um, frivolous, and it's not there just for publicity's sake, and it's not there just to buy cheap nostalgia from the audience. Like, oh, you like Robert Downey Jr.? Well, here he is. You like Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark? Well, here he is. Um, that's not what his character is there for. And that was really surprising and, and very refreshing. And you find that out very, very quickly once you get past the vulture scenes and we move to Spider-Man. That's very, very apparent, immediately apparent, why Tony Stark is necessary in this movie. Um, I like it. As far as Michael Keaton goes, I believe that the speed bump in his career was when he turned down Batman forever. That is about the time, isn't it? Yeah. He, um, he had creative differences with, uh, where they were taking the character and, uh, and with Schumacher. Cause uh, he's, he's always said he would come back if Tim Burton was directing. And neither of those things are probably ever going to happen. But, uh, yeah, I think that that cost him a bit of momentum. Well, I mean, and it's too bad that he turned it down because it did wonders for Val Kilmer. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a no-win situation. Uh, He's also in American Assassin, which is uh, coming out uh, in just a month or so. Uh, It's coming out in the middle of August, so Hmm. I might have to go see uh, American Assassin just just to see him in it because uh Michael Keaton might be uh he he makes everything he's in better um have you guys makes, seen, I was gonna ask have you seen Birdman have both of you guys seen Birdman I have seen Birdman yeah yeah that one scene remember where he talks to Edward Norton about his childhood remember that one like when I was sure. dad was yeah, his dad was drunk. Just, I, I did not see the turn coming on that one. And then he's like, that's acting. Like, whoa. <laughs> Michael Keaton is a top-shelf actor. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that was impressive. Yeah, most of the things he's done since uh, um, since the Batman Return. I'm looking at his IMDb page right now. Most of the things he's done since uh, Batman Returns have been either bit parts or um, he's done a lot of voiceovers, uh, voiceover work in like Cars, um, Gary the Rat, King of the Hill. Um, he did a guest appearance on Frasers, did appearance on Simpsons. So, yeah, he it doesn't look like he got uh, Batman Returns, not a lot of stuff, and then Multiplicity, which I haven't seen. I heard a lot of people liked it, but it did not do very well with audiences. Um, yeah. And then there was Desperate Measures where he played that, uh, I believe that's a movie where he plays the killer, the uh, murderer, hmm. um, who, so he's he's trying to escape from the police. He plays a bad guy. He's the villain. And then he, he was in a movie called Jack Frost that same year. And after that, it looks like he made some bad choices there. Uh, and after that, he hasn't had a lot of, he hasn't been the lead in a lot of movies and the movies he has been in have not been um, top notch A-list movies. So it may be that Birdman is just what he needed to 
um, try and vault back up into prominence to get some good roles, and hopefully Spider-Man Homecoming will uh, will help with that. Amen. I, uh, I feel like there's stuff that I needed to talk about about the show, but I can't, or about the movie we saw, but I can't remember any of them, so... Um, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was very, very well done. There's some things about it that I didn't like, but those do not intrude into the plot or the actual movie itself. Um, they exist outside the movie, so don't I don't worry about them, especially in this review. And uh, if you're if you like Spider-Man the character, and if you're keeping up with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, by all means go see the movie. It's well worth it. Um, and Spider-Man will be returning in next year's. Uh, the third Avengers movie, Infinity War, and he will also be returning in the currently untitled fourth Avengers movie and another solo movie past that. So, yeah, it was well worth it. It's good to see Spider-Man get out of Sony's claws. Now, technically, they still own the rights to the character, so they get their logo at the beginning, but they didn't have anything to do with this movie at all. And... Uh, which I guess technically makes this the second good movie Tony Sony's released in a decade, but they don't really get credit for that because it was all Marvel. They had nothing to do with it. Oh, hmm. I have notes that I forgot. I guess I don't need to refer to them anymore because we're done. <laughs> done. But I sat there in the theater and for the first you know, 10, 20 minutes I took notes and after that I was like, oh, I don't need to take notes anymore because it is a great movie and I didn't need to, I'm not recording plot points to talk about them on the show because of spoilers. So, all right. Um, I think that's it then. Do you have uh, any last words, John? Just thanks for everybody for listening. Uh, I loved hearing your review. Good to talk about stuff this week. Uh, thanks everybody in the chat for listening. See you all next time. Um, any, uh, any last words, Brian? Like a second or an all. Thank you everyone for listening. You guys are why we do what we do. Be sure to pick up my Stenlo novella, Hymn of the Pearl, available now from Amazon. And don't forget to vote for the Dragon Awards. Secret Kings is eligible for best sci-fi. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, by the way, folks, I, I don't think I've really made a point. This movie was enjoyable from the beginning to the end. There was never a point that I was bored. There's never a point where I was uh, confused or uncertain as to what was happening or why. It's a very, very enjoyable movie. It's great. It's got great action scenes. It's got good characters, great actors, and it's a really good movie. Um, I, it was sitting very, very high on Rotten Tomatoes as far as you know, it's a review aggregator site where they take all the reviews of a bunch of critics and then aggregate them into one score. Spider-Man Homecoming right now is at a 94%. And I would say it deserves that rating. That is a fair rating for this movie. So if uh, if you want to look at it earning a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, that's fair. That's the kind of quality of movie we're talking about. And I realize at the very last of this show that I don't sound as enthusiastic about the movie as it deserves. Now, maybe it's because we've seen so many superhero movies. Maybe it's because we've just gotten used to Marvel releasing pretty much, with a few rare exceptions, great movie after great movie. So it's like, oh, it's another great movie Marvel does. Ho-hum, yawn. 
you know, kind of like Pixar. If there's two studios who are really, for the most part, hitting it out of the park almost every time, it's Marvel and Pixar. So maybe it's because of that. Maybe it's because I'm really tired today. But it is a really good movie, and it was a very enjoyable time. And if I had just been watching it to watch it, not to sit there taking notes for the show, I, I would have just sat there wrapped and, and loved watching the movie. And as it was, 20 minutes into the movie, it wrapped me up to where, I, like I said, I, I just stopped taking notes. Not only didn't I need to, I didn't want to. I wanted to watch the movie. I wanted to enjoy the characters. I wanted to enjoy the interaction. I wanted to enjoy what was going on on screen. So I stopped taking notes because the movie was that interesting. The movie had me... Uh, you know, fully bought in at that point, and I just enjoyed the rest of it. It's a great movie, very well done. I really enjoyed it, and it earned its it earned every single point of its ninety four percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So, I, I would encourage you to go see it if you like superhero movies or if you just like good action movies. It's a great movie, um, and like all Marvel movies, it does have a mid credits sting in it, and it also has another scene after all the credits are done. So if you go and see it, you know, uh, as uh, Kestis Calvitus says in the chat, stay through all the way to the end of the credits. Um, well, we're going to... That's it, folks. We're done. We're out of here. We're leaving. Um, by all means, remember to click subscribe and then click on the little bell icon to, to double secret subscribe so you will receive email warnings about when the show's going live. You'll know when we're going on. You can come and listen to the show. Uh, we're also available. You can watch us on youtube.com slash geekgab. All of the Geek Gab Network shows are available on YouTube, or you can subscribe to us through iTunes, through the Google Play Store, or visit soundcloud.com and listen to the show that way. This is episode 106. We've done 106 of these babies. Uh, and we have, this year has been densely packed with movie reviews, so all, all I can tell you about the next four weeks is that there are currently a number of really great movies coming out, and our plan is to review them. Plans sometimes change, plans sometimes fall through, but we're looking at War for the Planet of the Apes, Dunkirk, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, and The Dark Tower, at the very least, uh, for the next few weeks, so look to us to be doing movie reviews of all of those movies and uh, the odd thing here and there. We very much appreciate everyone who tuned in. We very much appreciate everyone who came and sat in the chat and talked about stuff during the movie. And we are leaving you for now, folks. But don't worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.